You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get started, very important, I'm so excited. My book, How the Bible Actually Works, is going to be coming out in a couple of days. And I've been writing it since I was like five years old, and this is like my life's work. I think you started with quill and ink, Yes, I did. But anyway, I'm really excited about talking about how I think the Bible works as something that leads us on a path towards wisdom rather than simply handing us answers. I don't think that's how the Bible was intended. So I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I guess we have to get to the other thing we do today, which is the podcast. So what's what's the podcast about today, Jared? Well, today we're going to talk about the Bible and film. So this weekend, as you're listening to this, the Oscars will be on. Mm. And... Yeah, there's a lot. Never a tedious five and a half hours where they give out the best awards like at I think, well, 1.30 I think in the they've, morning. I think they've really narrowed it down now. I think you get like nine seconds before they start playing that music and like it's so awkward. You would think people would learn by now. They wouldn't. Yeah. Actors could stay with their lines, but I, they can't. Exactly. But we're going to anyway. be talking about the Bible and film yeah. with Rhonda Burnett-Bletch, who is a scholar on Bible and film. Yeah. And, and Old Testament in general. Yeah, she's a colleague yeah, of mine I, I at love Eastern that. University. Yeah, so she's she's a biblical scholar, uh, has her PhD from Duke University, and like I said, she's my colleague. But one of her areas of interest is something that I've never given tremendous thought to, which is the Bible and film. But as you'll see, she's given a lot of thought to the Bible and film. Yeah. And one of the things that I appreciated about this, I like the, I love these conversations about the intersection of Christian faith, the Bible, and culture. So right. I appreciated how uh, sometimes I, I just grew up in a tradition where to be a Christian, you had to have art look a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciate scholars like Rhonda who can break down those barriers and say, well, if you actually are more sophisticated, if you take the time to look, there's these rich and deep meanings that as a person of faith can really actually help you grow in your faith and help you see things in a new way. Yeah, and like for, for some people, you know, where the big active question growing up was always, is it okay to go to movies, period? This is like, yeah. <laughs> God is in the movies. Yeah, yeah and, and how, how the, the questions of, of meaning and existence, and a lot of them come right from biblical themes and characters, get woven very intentionally into film. And it helps you, like we talk about on the podcast, Jared, it helps you really look at the Bible from an angle that you might not have considered. Mm-hmm. So it does what any act of interpretation of the Bible does. It just makes you think. And and Rhonda has some advice for us and, and some suggestions and all sorts of things. And we talk about a lot of different movies, and they won't all be there. But if you go to thebibleformormalpeople.com and look at our blog, we'll have something up there about a lot of these films just so that, you know, when you're driving, you don't kill yourself by trying to write <laughs> them down on the way. Just go <laughs> later. But we'll just have a list of films that Rhonda and maybe we'll add a few that we have been influential for us in terms of faith formation and how we see God and uh, the Bible and film. Right. All right, well, let's get to it. Let's have this conversation with Rhonda. And what I like to point out to my students when I teach Bible and film is we do the same thing when we read or when you preach a sermon or you do any kind of interpretation. Reading is interpretation, just like filmmaking is interpretation. It's really impossible to be a completely objective interpreter who just approaches the text without filling in the gaps or asking questions. And it's okay to do that. The rabbis have been doing that for a long, long time. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, Rhonda, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, and uh, I guess our topic is the Bible and film. And we'd like to start with letting our guests just talk a little bit about how they got into this topic, their little evolution or, or movement, because, you know, not every Bible scholar gets into the Bible and film, but you did. So, so walk us through that. Definitely not. It's sort of a um, small niche of biblical studies, but I think an important one. In fact, when I did my doctoral work ages ago at Duke University, there was no formal training at all in Bible and film. It was all source, form, redaction, and historical criticism, archaeology, it never even occurred to me that I could do some research for my next article or book by going down to the Cineplex. Hmm. This wasn't part of my formal training. In fact, when I was interviewing for my first job postgraduate school, I was interviewing at a small liberal arts college where I eventually taught for several years. And my predecessor there had taught a popular film class. So the question came up in my interview, could you teach this class? And you know what you say when you're interviewing for your first job <laughs> after grad school. Absolutely. (laughs) Of course I can. I'd love to teach that. It'd be wonderful. (laughs) So I ended up teaching Bible and film, or theology of story, as it was called, and kind of had to figure out what that was from the classroom, which turned out to be the perfect preparation for doing that. I actually was teaching alongside Barnes Tatum, who became a great friend and mentor, colleague of mine for a number of years. He's one of the pioneers in Jesus Cinema looking at that as a biblical scholar, comparing it to the Gospels, figuring out what these audiovisual Gospels of the 20th century are saying. So he was certainly an influence in introducing me to the fact that, you know, biblical scholarship could be fun and interesting and contemporary. Yeah, connect with where people are actually living. Exactly. And as soon as you say film class, there's students lining up (laughs) because they think they don't have to read any books. They get to watch movies. Then they they get all disappointed when they realize I'm going to make them read, too. (laughs) And actually think through the movie. Yes, and they're not going to be all Marvel films. Not a lot of explosions, necessarily. But you can watch some films with explosions and talk about the Bible of them, too. I'm out. (laughs) I knew I'd lose you there. That's that's what they should do. They need to come out with a Jesus film that has lots of explosions. Oh, yeah. Well, Aronofsky threw in Giants, so... We can do that. Uh, what You just mentioned a film. What is the film you just mentioned? I, I saw it and I really liked it. Um, Aronofsky's Noah. That came out in 2016, I believe. Yeah. Oh, 2014. 
And I love the film, actually. It yeah. didn't get great reviews, and a lot of people were kind of offended by it because they felt he was taking liberties with the biblical text. But any biblical scholar knows that the Watchers are actually ancient. Yeah, what, to explain that. What are the Watchers? Because, I mean, not, not everyone may, will necessarily understand some of these words. So just the Watchers, the Giants, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, get into that a little bit. Um, well, the genre of rewritten scripture comes about really between the Testaments and after the New Testament where rabbis and biblical scholars, ancient biblical scholars, are still writing literature and responding to their inherited traditions and doing it as a way of answering contemporary questions. So you get books written like Enoch and Jubilees that have all of these apocalyptic elements. The Watchers are an expansion of the story that appears just before Noah's Ark in Genesis 6, where you have the Nephilim, when the sons of God saw the daughters of men were fair. And they produced, um, reproduced, and the Nephilim were the result. The giants? The giants, so yeah. yeah. And um, the, that gets expanded in extra-biblical literature. So Aronofsky did a lot of research um, in this film, took a lot of the names that come from that literature for his watchers, um, looked at all kinds of rabbinic speculation um, about whether or not there was sex on the ark or what kind of clothing Adam and Eve might have been clothed with, what kind of skins when they left the garden, which is where that snake skin comes mm. from that he wraps around his arm a couple of times in the film. So it's very interesting. He's very much in dialogue with a lot of ancient traditions. But what I think is really great about that film, Noah, is that he doesn't just talk about the ancient traditions. He brings in this idea of creation care mm. into the story as well. And Noah versus Tubal-Cain become, on the one hand, Tubal-Cain is someone who wants to exploit the environment, not care for the earth, as Adam and his descendants have been commanded to do. And Noah wants, on the other hand, to protect the animals and protect the earth. And that's a really important message for today. It's not necessarily, I think, in Genesis 6 through 9 explicitly, but it certainly is in Scripture. And one of the things that Noah does, Aronofsky does in Noah, is he brings these scriptural ideas together and retells them for our own time and place. Let's, uh, I want to kind of come back to what you said and maybe extrapolate out of not just this film, but maybe even just kind of an art, because you're in, in this art space where I, you just mentioned people were upset with the Noah film because they didn't, I think sometimes some Christians just like want you to literally take the words on the page and put them into actors' mouths, and then that's how it's going to get made, and that's how you be faithful to the text. So could you just comment on what you see in movies, and what what is the criteria for them to what's a what's a good about Noah? Because I think if you take just the criteria that it's it literally takes every single word from the Bible and do that's that's clearly I don't think a reasonable expectation. But what is the criteria for? a good Bible film. Well, not everyone's always going to be happy with um, the theological position of the director of the film, you know, um, just like in any theological discussion. Shocker. Yeah. There's controversy when it comes to hermeneutics. (laughs) But you can't just have a literal film. Mel Gibson, back when he did The Passion of the Christ, which in some ways was said to be the revitalization of the classical biblical epic, he claimed he was just filming the Bible. And he put the Gospels there, had the dialogue directly from the Gospels in Latin and in Aramaic. But you can't help but interpret because you're visualizing and you're turning it into a connective narrative and the characters have facial expressions and intonation. And 
you're always doing more than just showing the biblical text. And what I like to point out to my students when I teach Bible and film is we do the same thing when we read or when you preach a sermon or you do any kind of interpretation. Reading is interpretation, just like filmmaking is interpretation. It's really impossible to be a completely objective interpreter who just approaches the text without filling in the gaps or asking questions. And it's okay to do that. The rabbis have been doing that for a long, long time. Um, That's just part of Jewish tradition, that you can turn a word over and think about what it means or wonder if maybe Noah should have protested when God said, go kill everybody. Or when God said, I'm going to go kill everyone with these waters of the flood, except for your family. Well, when God says, I'm going to go kill all the people in that city over there, Abraham says, well, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What if, what if there are 50 righteous men over there? Maybe Noah should have taken more of an approach like Abraham in Genesis 18. And the rabbis have had this discussion, and we sort of see it repeated again in Aronofsky's film in a contemporary idiom. And he pulls in Genesis 22 with, uh, are you going to kill the child? Are you going to slay the child if you feel that God has told you to? And that final climactic mm-hmm. scene there. Well, even, you know, what you said to the students that when they read, they're doing the same thing, they're interpreting, they're filling in the gaps. Even on the level of just thinking about a story, like Jesus has to be wearing clothes, right? And that's like like you said before with like, you know, what sort of clothes were Adam and Eve wearing? It's just, it's as simple as that. And that, and that kind of a problem just gets magnified when you're going to put this on film. You have to make decisions about what they're going to look like and... And I guess good directors and producers are, and writers are thinking about that kind of stuff, maybe down to details that a lot of us wouldn't notice. Sure. And you always have nowadays historical advisors, even in the early days of cinema, historical advisors, religious advisors on film, on films. But we tend in Hollywood to make Jesus white, right? We tend to make Jesus look and sound like the dominant culture and the dominant ethnic group in the United States. When we make Bible films, we kind of read our own ideology and political thoughts into that film. Like in 1956, when Cecil B. DeMille made the Ten Commandments. That's a very American Moses. Charlton Heston was definitely talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not just freeing the Israelites from Egypt. So we're we're projecting onto these stories when making films, just like we do anytime we use the biblical text. Or if you look at the more recent rendition of of the Ten Commandments um, that my students always love, The Prince of Egypt, there's lots and lots of talk about belief in that film, but it's kind of vague. You know, what exactly is it? It's just very typical of the generation that there's great singing and music and it feels really good and you just have to believe, but we're not going to get too particular on the details of what it is that you believe or where these Israelites are going as they march off toward Canaan and what's going to come next in the story. So are there are there different categories of what you would kind of quote be Bible films? Because I know there's the explicit everything from like the Passion of the Christ to the Prince of Egypt, but I'm thinking of you know films that have a lot of Bible in them, even though it's not specifically a Bible film. Like what what would be how would you categorize those? Oh, that's a good question. What constitutes a biblical film? I mean, it's definitely not limited to the classical epic or what you might call the the bathrobe genre or the sword and sandal film. Sometimes scholars of Bible and film distinguish between the Bible on film, which is the Ten Commandments, the Passion of the Christ, or the Bible in film, which is when you have film cite a biblical text, or there's an epigram at the beginning of the film taken from Job, 
or a story from the Bible is retold by one of the characters. Or on another level, sometimes elements of plot are borrowed from the biblical text, like the Lion King retells the Exodus story in some ways. Characters might be borrowed. You might have an Eve figure or a Christ figure in a film, a Mary Magdalene, and certainly themes. There are lots of Job films, creation films out there, which are a special interest of mine. So in all of these cases, there are demonstrable links between the Bible and these films, but sometimes you have to look for them. You may not notice them. Sometimes they're fairly obvious, but sometimes you have to do a little digging to realize, oh yeah, I see, Um, this is what's going on there. There is a connection there that maybe was intentional on the part of the director. Hmm. There are also um, film scholars who um, are biblical scholars who deal with the third category, Bible and film, where the connection is entirely in the mind of the interpreter, and that's okay. They're just creating a dialogue between a film and a biblical text in order to elucidate both in some ways. Just heard some great papers at SBL um, comparing Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth to apocalyptic literature when the little girl walks off into the uh, this other reality. You have this unseen world, the lifting of the veil. So it's not necessarily in the intention of the production of the film to have a biblical theme, but some people can sort of see them in there. Often it is the filmmaker's intention, I believe, but not necessarily. Um, It's the same question of, I see this meaning in the text, does it matter if the author intended it there? If someone writes a poem, is the only meaning of that poem what the poet intended? what the poet was thinking about. So for, I mean, for example, I can imagine it might be difficult to distinguish, maybe we don't have to distinguish, maybe that's your point, between, uh, let's say, a theme that appears in a movie like someone giving his life for the community, for the greater good, or something like that. And that could be a biblical theme, or it could be a universal theme, because that appears in other cultures as well, in other religions. So uh, uh, should we make a distinction, or is it more just how it hits us? I think that we can only interpret as who we are. So if we're a person who stands within the Judeo-Christian tradition, we'll definitely see Jesus when we see something like that. But I think we should also recognize that those themes are broader in some ways. You know, you can watch The Matrix and think, oh, Neo is a Christ figure, and he is, but he's mm-hmm. also a bodhisattva. You know, there are other mm-hmm. things going on as well there, other influences on films. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? 
They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And fast-growing trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, well, you mentioned earlier, too, that you had some favorites, uh, film, uh, you know, Bible in film, and you mentioned Job and creation. And you want to share with maybe one or two of those films that, that you really like and why you like them? It'll be hard to narrow it down to one or two, but I'll try. Okay, 15. Go right ahead. Or, or somewhere in the middle. <laughs> we'll just like stop five. recording at some point. All right. Don't worry. So when I'm thinking of creation <laughs> films, one of the films that I just love is the 2009 create film called Creation that was about the life of Charles Darwin. And of course, the Bible's going to be quoted in that because he had this religious wife who didn't want him to publish his work, was worried about it. And people who were cautioning him that he would destroy the church if he published The Origin of the Species. So there are all kinds of science and religion questions going on in the film. Even the cover of the DVD and the movie poster are are taken from the creation of Adam from the Sistine Chapel ceiling, Mm -hmm. where we have Darwin reaching out a finger and meeting the finger of the ape Jenny. They're touching one another like that. So that raises all kinds of religious questions from a creation theme. Tons of biblical passages are quoted in that film. But on a more typological level, the film is also a Job story because as it tells the story of Darwin writing The Origin of the Species, he's dealing with the death of his daughter, the death of a child, and asking all kinds of theodicy questions like what kind of God would allow this? What kind of God would design the world so this particular kind of wasp is going to lay its eggs in this caterpillar? And when the eggs hatch, it's going to eat the caterpillar from the inside out. So there are all kinds of Job questions going on there with his suffering. And often I feel that creation films and Job films interlink, just like you have so many creation themes in the book of Job. We also have a group of films like The Truman Show and Pleasantville and The Adjustment Bureau, which was not as successful but came out in 2011 with Matt Damon where we have really the Garden of Eden retold. And there are these characters that are in these situations where their lives are pre-programmed. They're um, following a script or a plan. And everything is safe, and everything is very pleasant and very nice. But the characters are dissatisfied, and they want to escape from Eden. So why do we have so many films from the late 90s, early 2000s, where we have the possibility of Eden in the film, but people not being happy in it? Even in Matrix, The Matrix, um, there's a conversation where the AI tells Neo that um, in the original version of The Matrix, everything was perfect and humans couldn't take it. They had to go in and they had to make a messed mm. up world. Before you move on, you know, you said 
these movies coming out in a particular cultural moment in the late 90s. Do you have a, what your, I don't want you to go on without the answer. I couldn't take it. Yeah. Do you have an answer for that question? <laughs> I'm really not sure, but I know that a common theme throughout American cinema has been the importance of free will and self-determination. So I think that that is just such a strong value in our culture that the concept of Genesis 2 and 3 that, hey, we could have been safe, we could have had not had this knowledge, we could have not eaten from that tree. It's hard for people, especially people outside of the church who aren't used to hearing that story in that way all the time, to see that as a good possibility. You know, better to be self-determining, better to sort of in a paradise lost kind of way, better to make your own, own choices. Uh, and I'm not really sure um, why that arose in the late 19. 19- That reminds me of, uh, and you can comment or disagree, but it reminds me of a philosopher, Slavoj Žižek, and I think that's who it was, who mentioned this plethora of apocalyptic films, how we've in the last 30 years been obsessed with the end of the world. And he was theorizing that it's because it's easier, we're at the point of no return, it's easier for us to imagine a world that just gets blown up so we get to start over than trying to actually reform the one we have. And apocalyptic so films are really interesting, too. Um, there are all kinds of studies of apocalyptic films and how they've changed from eventually the world's going to get better and better, you know, in this post-millennial kind of way, to things are just going to get worse and worse. So we've kind of seen a, an alteration in the way America thinks about apocalyptic. More recently, films like Ex Machina, where you definitely have an Eve figure, beautiful AI who's named Eva, is created by human beings. So we have this whole genre of films where humans create, humans are in the role of God, creating an AI or creating Hal in a space odyssey. You know, this this creation that's eventually going to turn on you, become smarter than you, or um, the replicants in Blade Runner. So what does it actually mean to be a human? Is the AI and ex machina actually real? Is she human? Is she convincing? Are the replicants in Blade Runner more human than the humans? The test in Blade Runner to see whether or not those replicants are human is to give them an empathy test to see if they can empathize. And generally, they seem more empathetic than the humans do. I'm talking about the original 1982 movie by Ridley Scott. So I think that's a very interesting question as well. But it kind of plays on both Paradise Lost and Frankenstein in the way that both of them are in conversation with Genesis 2 and 3, with creation and the relationship between creation and creator. I never thought of Frankenstein connected to the garden. Now I will. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Trevor Birak from Dawson Creek, British Columbia, Canada. And I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. A couple things I've appreciated about this podcast are how Pete and Jared give space for not knowing, space for questions, but don't just leave us there. They give us something to stand on, and they say, it's going to be okay. Also, being a part of the Patreon family has been great as well. We're a diverse community that offers support for each other and like-mindedness. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a part of this group that brings the podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. 
that can go a long way to help other people find us. One group in particular we'd like to thank is our producers group, who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do better. So thanks to Jonathan Beck, Lucas Gibbs, Viviana Eastwood, Corey Moore, Dave Carlton, Kevin Mang, Sharon Rowland, and Heather Hamilton. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast. I mean, it's it's what I'm hearing is that I mean, maybe a way of of putting all this is that it's the use of biblical imagery that maybe has a deep connection with the culture, whether they know it or not. Oh yeah, like origins, beginnings, are we human? Things like that, and using those images to get us to think about our moment, or maybe to interpret our moment in time. But I imagine that it goes backwards too. That the influence can be to make you go back and look at the biblical story differently, too. Definitely. I mean, do you find that with your students? I mean, they're thinking differently about the stories themselves or just, oh, wow, this is really cool because it connects to our culture? I think that the influence goes both ways, right? Once you've Mm -hmm. seen a particular movie that has the deep connection with the biblical text, you're not going to be able to read that text in the same way again. One movie that comes to mind that's especially powerful is Son of Man by Mark Dornford May. It's a South African film that contemporizes the story of Jesus and places it in an imperial culture with these conflicting powers and the people kind of caught beneath that. And it takes a lot of the rhetoric from the anti-apartheid activist Stephen Biko and mixes that into the speeches of Jesus. So it, it makes you look at the political implications of the gospel, as well as to remember in a way that maybe we in the West don't always remember, that Jesus was born in an imperial context. He was the colonized. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you can't really go back and read sayings about the empire in the gospels after that the same way. Or if you watch The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> um, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's hard to go back and read the story of Hagar in the same way again after that. Because we're so fam- we've tamed the biblical stories, at least those of us who are familiar with them and for whom they mean something. I guess we've tamed those stories and looking at other interpretations actually expose it makes us look at them from a different angle, from a fresh angle so they become unfamiliar maybe a little bit. And we say, my goodness gracious, I didn't know that was, oh gosh. <laughs> what should horrible. be disturbing isn't disturbing anymore because it's so familiar. Until you see The Handmaid's Tale and suddenly yeah. realize what that means that she will bear upon my knees. Well, and and, and that is an ad, I mean, I think that's a one reason why we would want to advocate for, you know, going back to people who are like, oh, well, what the real thing you should have is just the biblical text. But that won't resensitize us. It won't jar us from that. We need other interpretations that help us see different perspectives and kind of wait, kind of, I think of those as like shaking us and kind of making it real and contemporizing it and helping us not have it so tamed. It's sort of shaking it loose from where we've kind of put it in a cage. So it puts it in a different light for me of saying, yeah, we should encourage that. We should celebrate it because it helps us, it motivates us to see the, the text differently. Especially if we watch a film that really takes a different perspective than the one we're used to. I'd rather watch something like Dornford May's Son of Man or Sheikha Marsu Soko, who's a, a filmmaker from Mali, one of their films about the Bible than some of the more kind of sappy Jesus films from Hollywood that um, mm-hmm. came out in the 60s. So Soko's Genesis is, it takes a lot of the stories from the ancestral narratives, but really focuses on Genesis 34 and the rape of Dina and the resulting massacre of the Shechemites when Jacob's sons go and kill these people who have 
besmirch their family honor by raping their sister. And he uses the story to comment on modern-day genocides, Rwanda and other places where um, these genocides have happened. And that's just not something I would think to do with that text. And I look at that text and I don't necessarily see genocide. Watching that film encourages me to look at it in a different way. I mean, this is an extension. Of, you, you mentioned this before, Rhonda. This is an extension of just the nature of biblical interpretation throughout history anyway. And when you listen to people who are not part of your group, in this case, not part of our dominant culture here in, in the West, handling a text and saying, this is, this is what this story is saying to us in our culture – simply exposes you to a different way of looking at it. And it sort of, it it relativizes your own way of looking at it, which is probably a good thing. Oh, definitely. Of course, we should never think of our own interpretation as the final word on a biblical text. But this is kind of a reminder if we analyze our own movies that seem logical and natural to us and see, oh yeah, we're telling the story that way because we're post 9-11. Or we're telling the story that way because we're really concerned about environmentalism right now. I mean, you're familiar with Michael Fishbane and how he says that in the Hebrew Bible, the texts, the traditions that we have there are overlaid with commentary because throughout the centuries, these scribes took these older traditions and applied them to new situations ever and ever again. They kept retelling the same stories and making them relevant to new challenges, using their inherited traditions as a resource to face a new situation. And we're still doing that. It seems that that the only way that that's a threat is if somehow you think, which I would have been brought up with, there is an idea that there is a universal objective perspective, and and I have it, and everyone else's is an interpretation. I think that's the only way you could be threatened by all these different interpretations, is to assume that you don't have an interpretation, you only have the interpretation, and everyone else is messing with it somehow. But if we can see the, the beauty and the value of as many interpretations as we can get to get a fuller picture, I think that becomes a really great thing. Absolutely. And of course, it's really, really arrogant to assume that you have the only interpretation. You know, the- yeah, you probably shouldn't, like, you shouldn't really think that you know how the Bible actually works. <laughs> Jared's making fun of my book that's coming out. I don't appreciate that at all. Oh, I know, Pete, I know. I quit, oh, I'm out of here. That was my favorite part of the podcast, right? <laughs> Just open it up so well. But yeah, I think, I mean, just thinking of of the Bible and film as an extension of what people of faith have been doing with the Bible before there even was a Bible, when there were traditions and they were being recast and rethought to address new situations that the ancient times could not have anticipated. But there's still something powerful even if you know you're you're you know a film director and and you say well it's a powerful theme i want to use it to get something across or you're someone of deep religious faith who says this story has to speak to us today somehow it's still the same thing you know this bible is sitting there these traditions are sitting there that are demanding to be recast i guess and we're not finished with them yet um, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, the Bible's a great source of stories that are not under copyright protection, right? They're, they're free. <laughs> um, and they're great spectacles that you can create if you want to just film a biblical story. But even if you're just borrowing the bones of the story or the characters, there are universal questions in the Bible. Like, you know, what is a human? And is there a plan? And why is there suffering? Is there salvation? How do we live together in community? And often that's when you find the 
films are in conversation with biblical texts when they're asking those kinds of questions, or how will it all end in the apocalyptic films? We go to the Bible, either consciously or unconsciously, to answer those questions. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. Residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Yeah, and I appreciate the conversation because it's starting to make me think, like, I wonder, you know, and some of your role, Rhonda, too, is I think kind of collating or bringing these things together, but it's almost as though this is kind of our own version of, of Midrash, where we have, where it's an audiovisual representation of all these interpretations on interpretations and thinking of like the Cohen brothers, a, a, a serious man, or even like uh, Terrence Malick, uh, the tree of life. And these, it, it's like Midrashic. And it's wonderful to have scholars like yourself who can kind of pick through all of the films that are made and kind of collate them into this collection of uh, of kind of a Midrashic feel to them all. Um, so anyway, I, I hadn't thought of that before, but as we're talking, that seems to be, would that be a fair assessment of, of what films in Bible are? I think so. I use that metaphor a lot in my class, that this is Midrash, that we're just looking at it from different angles, asking what-if questions. But you mentioned wisdom films, two great ones there. I'm a serious man. I love the Coen brothers. At least two-thirds of their films have 
having important connections with um, biblical literature. And in Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, you've got that wonderful moment in the middle of the film where you're dealing with, again, the death of a child and all these Jobin questions, and they're Job mm-hmm. quotes and sermons throughout the film. But in the middle, you have this moment where it seems like we go back to the beginning of life on the planet and their dinosaurs, and right. you know it's not exactly a Genesis 1 kind of creation. But if you think that's about why do we go back to creation in the middle of a Job film, for me, I think that's where Malick was saying, Here's where God appears. You know, this is God answering the situation with all of that creation imagery that um, God, too, is a mother, just like the morning mother in that film. Yeah, I'm about as unsophisticated as they come when it comes to interpreting film. But I saw that movie on an airplane. Mm-hmm. And by the time I landed, I, I thought to myself, I didn't just see a movie. I, this was an experience. Yes. It was unbelievable. I've seen it now several times since then, but just these weaving of themes, it was very, very, very powerful and unsettling in a good sense. It was it was disorienting. For it's me, hard to but, watch. A lot yeah. of these movies are hard to watch. Aronofsky's Mother is another one that's hard to watch and potentially offensive to a lot of people, but definitely in conversation with the biblical text. I didn't yeah. see that. Oh, What's you didn't? Yeah, I think, I think Noah might be his least offensive movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the fountain. Maybe the fountain. Oh, right, right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was thinking, just because we're thinking about this, how influential movies were at a time, I feel like as a teenager, movies really helped solidify my theology. I'm thinking, I think I probably got like half of my theology from between Braveheart and The Count of Monte Cristo and like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You mentioned the Coen brothers. And... I just, so much of like my early 20s, even in like Bible college, I'm like putting these movies in papers and just have a way of memorable depictions of the gospel or how God and and the Bible function in our culture. And just thinking about that as these are really, these can be really powerful witnesses to how we can live out our faith without it being wooden or literalistic or kind of like you said, some of the cheesier 60s Jesus movies. And I, I, I guess I'm expressing a, a wish that we would kind of see those for what they are more and more. Well, I think we're a storytelling people, and among other things, the Bible is a story, and film is the dominant mode of storytelling in the modern world. So we have to look at, when we do see the Bible on film, as this is sort of a, a new kind of translation. Hmm. You know, Pete mentioned not being a sophisticated uh, connoisseur of movies, or how do you kind of pull these themes out? Are there... Would you give? What are some tips that you might give to people on? Hey, when you're watching a film, maybe there's some things that they can be. Watching. How not to watch films like an idiot? <laughs> that's your that's your next book. That's my next book. I'll how to not that. be a moron? Okay. So yeah, are there are there some tips that you would give your students or to others on just kind of things to watch out for? Pay attention to the details of a film. What's in the background? Um, what's on the soundtrack? Often we watch a film and we experience it, and we don't really we feel it, but we don't realize why that was moving or why that sounded familiar. So paying attention to the details is important. Learning the language of film. Film studies is a whole academic discipline. Film has a language. And learning about editing and cutting and framing and mise-en-scene and all of these other things are are really important. What was that last thing you said? Mise-en-scene. What's in the frame? What you see in the frame? both the setting and um, props and other things. Um, Picking good movies, too. 
You don't always judge them by the explosions. There are good movies with a lot of explosions, but you know, sometimes All right, Rhonda, see cut it out. Stop <laughs> it now. That's enough. Let me, okay, here's the question that you hate, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I'm a simple person. If you had to direct somebody to like, here's a really good movie to watch <laughs> that's, you know, Bible in film or whichever one of those categories, do you have one that just always comes to mind that just like, th- this is just great. This just sort of nails it. Or is that really a ridiculous question? <laughs> no, seriously, because we're talking about art and things move you in different ways at different times, right? And sometimes you're connected with this kind of thing, sometimes with that. But is is there one or maybe two or three that just rise above the surface all the time for you? I love Tender Mercies by Bruce Bareford. It was a Robert Duvall movie. Not necessarily a typical Robert Duvall role, but it came out in 1983. And Robert Duvall played a country music singer who was down on his luck, had lost all his money from drinking and hard living, and ends up in a hotel with called the Mariposa, you know, the butterfly. And the biblical net connections are deeply buried in the film, but when you put that film together in conversation with Job and Ecclesiastes, because of some of the things that happen, again, there's the death of a child, there's this parallel stories between who becomes his stepson and, and him, and the suffering that they both go through, and it's just really, really beautiful, and it's one of those films where there's not much of a storyline, and there's not much talking, and there's a lot of silence, and it's just so beautiful. It's an experience, like The Tree of Life, which is another of my favorites. I love the films with subtitles. I love Adam's Apples. If you like dark comedy, that's a great creation and wisdom film. What language? It's Danish. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> um, but it's hilarious if you have a sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> So I'm always a little um, hesitant to recommend that to some people. But if you do okay. have a sense of humor, that's a really funny movie. All right. So all of these films that we talked about are really, really wonderful. Now, if you ask me what, what film I would recommend. What film would you recommend, Pete? Superman. Because uh, he comes out of the sky and he helps people and he can fly. And his and father th- sent him to Earth. And things shoes out of his eyes. What? <laughs> his father sent him to Earth. See, that's, that's right. Superman. And, his, and even his name is mm-hmm. L. They've got this EL thing at the end there, So, right? Superman is the answer to this Venn diagram of good Jesus films and explosions. It That's it. It's Superman. right there. Superman. And he's you pro-America, <laughs> right? Just and like what else? And he looks really good in tights, just like he's, Jesus. He's just the grab bag of everything. He's everything. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. That's the one that does it for me. And he gets married. So, I don't know what else. It's pretty much Jesus right there. So. <sighs> Superman is kind of the character that a lot of the Christ figure, is it useful to talk about Christ figures? Do we go too far talking about Christ figures? That's a big discussion. Mm. What makes a Christ figure? Like you were saying earlier, Pete, that um, the idea that you give your life for other people or that um, you come and you help people and you're a nice person or you die sacrificially, it's not limited to Christianity or to Jesus. So, at what point are we seeing Christ figures everywhere just because somebody happens to stretch their yeah. arms out at some point in the film? Exactly. And it's hard to draw that line. Exactly. Right. Are there any, uh, to that point, are there any surprising films? Like you, you've kind of mentioned Marvel and we talked about Superman and other things. Are there things that you, we might be surprised that you would say, hey, this actually has um, a lot of maybe more nuanced themes than you would originally have suspected? So just going off the top of my head, I would say maybe Barton Fink. Or The Lady Killers by the Coen Brothers. You know, you think of those as sort of their comedies that maybe aren't too religious, you know, but there is that scene where he pulls out the Bible from his hotel room drawer and you see the words of his play superimposed on the biblical text. And there's just a whole lot of Daniel 
in Barden Fink when he goes to that hotel with the plant-printed botanical wallpaper that's dripping off like the gardens of Babylon, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Uh And his favorite author has written the book Nebuchadnezzar. And just little lines of dialogue and things that get dropped along the way that connect that film to Daniel because Barton has come to Hollywood as a New York playwriter and now he's going to write Hollywood screenplays and he's like Daniel in Babylon now. He's been taken captive. Um, (laughs) He's not in his place anymore. That's an unusual film. And similarly, there's at the very beginning of Lady Killers, which is an adaptation of the Coen's brothers. It's not their film. There's a quotation of the book of Daniel as well. So they're little things that um, you don't see right away. You're not, you're not expecting it, but there it is. Not in that genre. Yeah. Well, listen, Rhonda, we're, we're coming to the end of our time. We've enjoyed this so much. Uh, can you just, I mean, where can people find you out there in the world besides just coming to your house? And are there any projects you're working on or maybe you've just completed and, and any stuff like that? Well, I'm on Facebook as Rhonda Burnett because Rhonda Burnett Bletch is just too long. And currently I'm working on the beginning stages of a project with a a friend of mine, Richard Walsh, at Methodist University. We're talking about writing a book on the films of the Coen brothers together. Um, And ultimately, I'd love to write just an introductory textbook that points out creation films and wisdom films and, and Exodus films and Jesus films, both the Bible on film and the Bible in film. And introduces that at a level that I could use in um, my intro class. And you've written, you've edited a pretty hefty two-volume collection of essays. What's that called? The Bible in Motion, the reception history of the Bible on film. And yeah, that's a two-volume collection. I've edited a collection of essays on Aronofsky's Noah and written lots of chapters and essays that appear in other places about the Bible in film. Mm. Great. Well, people can find those pretty quickly, I'm sure, online. So, Well, listen, Rhonda, thanks so much for being with us. We enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too, Pete. Thanks for having me. Yep. You bet. All right, people. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Uh, Just a reminder, if you're interested, if you have a library nearby, you might want to look at the book that Rhonda mentioned, The Bible in Motion, a handbook of the Bible and its reception in film. Now, this is not for the faint of heart. It's two volumes. It's some handbook. It's two volumes, 900 pages long, and you can't really hold it in your hand. I don't know why they call it a handbook anyway. But it's, it's, a, it's a, a German publisher. It's a very academic publisher. It's a very, very expensive. If you can afford it, buy it. But at least maybe try to check it out and see all these articles written by people about just looking at the Bible in film and even the titles are just fascinating and deep to look at but that's a great resource if you're interested in this topic and if you are just lazier like me go to the Bible for Normal People again and there on the blog you'll just see a a list of films that we've talked about here with Rhonda um, or maybe some others and yeah take some time this weekend maybe watch one or two of those see if you can spot some of those themes and uh, also make sure that uh, in addition while you're while you're on the blog, just go ahead and type in Amazon.com, type in Pete Enns, and there'll be a new book there called How the Bible Actually Works, and go ahead and buy that, too. Thank so, you, Jared. Yeah, you're very welcome. Checks in the mail. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll see you next time, guys. See ya.